This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal, and I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we're only about eight days into the Biden uh, administration, and we are in the midst of ongoing, extremely problematic, potentially catastrophic, dangerous situation confronting this country, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's the threat of domestic terrorism. Just yesterday, for one of the few times, probably the only time in American history, Department of Homeland Security issued an alert of terrorism. But in this case, the terror threat was not from the another part of the world. It was a threat of domestic terrorism from white supremacy groups being active, ongoing, and as the impeachment uh, trial in the Senate approaches, the threat is increasing rather dramatically. On the pandemic front, we continue to be confronted with uh, variants that are mutating of the coronavirus that may or may not be as effectively treated by current vaccines, which is causing a lot of alarm, and the rates continue to increase at rather rapid rates. Having said all that, we have other news that uh, we need to confront that it, that is very damaging, Jamal, in terms of, and I'll just put it out there. What has happened since the Trump administration is nothing less than the assault on reality and truth. And we now have lawmakers, you know, Congress men and women who are either carrying guns into the chamber or attempting to carry guns, who are QAnon believers. And in this particularly egregious case, we have a congresswoman, uh, Marjorie Green, who demanded that uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar place her hand on a Bible rather than on the Quran. A truly outrageous uh, request coming from a member of Congress. That's right, Jess. Uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Green which we should add that she's a canon-supporting Republican who is known for pushing conspiracy theories and making racist uh, comments and remarks. And uh, this is a new video that surfaced, uh, and uh, I, I guess before she was elected into Congress, uh, she was campaigning, and uh, it shows her trying to force Ilhan Omar, representatives Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, to retake their congressional oath on the Bible. The video footage which surfaced uh, yesterday, on Wednesday, uh, of Ms. Green walking through the halls of Congress prior of being elected uh, as a Georgia representative. And in it, she was claiming that both uh, Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib are illegitimate democratic representatives because they took their oaths of office on the Quran instead of the Bible, Jess. They signed it, they swore in on the Quran. Oh, we have the Bible. We're gonna talk about swearing in on the oaths, how to swear in on the Bible with okay. them mm-hmm. and let them know what our law says, yes. that you can't swear in on the Quran. So we're gonna, we're gonna explain to that. You know, we're gonna explain about how you can't swear in on the Quran and we're yeah. gonna have the Bible and ask them if they would swear in on the Bible, mm-hmm. that we really need we them. The yeah, we have the oath, yep. 
So I think no, that's important. The sad thing is, now you're, you're infringing on our religion. Which you should you're, not you're be infringing able to. on our religion. Yes. By saying that we can't swear in on the Quran. But when they swore in, it wasn't a law yet, right? So at the time they swore in. I don't know. I think at the time they swore in, that wasn't passed. Yeah. Because it wouldn't have been passed in a Republican control. Right. Yeah. So it was passed after they swore in. So they're not really official, I don't think. So let's go ask them to swear in in the Bible, because like you is said, it, Will, it I'm... It has to be the Holy Bible? I, yeah, it has to be the Bible. Well, the bottom line is Sharia yeah. law is not compatible with, with America. Yep. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Yeah, I, I truly feel like as a woman in America, I really need to go talk to these ladies. Yeah. Because they support, you know what, they support Sharia. And these are these are women that really would like to see Sharia in America. And as an American woman, as a business owner, as a mother, I have two daughters. I never want to see Sharia in America. And so I really want to go talk to these ladies and ask them what they are thinking and why they're serving in our American government. They really should go back to the Middle East if they support Sharia. So let's go talk to them. I definitely want to go talk to them. So this is the world that we're living in, Jamal. And I'm sorry that I made this prediction not just last week, but the week before and the week before that, that there's no way that the craziness of the Trump administration or Trump's presidency was going to just disappear after this election and the uh, inauguration of uh, uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris. In fact, what I believe we're seeing is a ramping up, a doubling down of crazy QAnon, conspiracy theorists. The majority of Republicans still do not believe that Joseph Biden was duly and uh, honestly and in reality elected as president of the United States. You have QAnon conspiracies, conspiracists like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who continue to uh, advocate and boast and speak about that Joseph Biden is not was not duly elected, was not really elected. And this is that Donald Trump and his Republican Party had the election stolen from them. They are advocating really kind of crazy theories that are not based on reality. And there's no evidence that the QAnon folks like Marjorie Taylor and the kind of extremist Republican Party are going anywhere soon, Jamal. They have doubled down on crazy and doubled down on a denial of reality. Yeah, I mean, they've backtracked uh, on their condemnations of what happened. I mean, uh, now they're making excuses to Donald Trump saying that, yeah, he wasn't responsible for what happened. They're spreading theories that these groups were infiltrated. And in your right, I mean, listen to see who's in Congress uh, like like her, and of course Ted Cruz and and others. Uh, so we're going to see more of this, I assume. And with the warnings that uh, that were issued by the FBI, uh, I think uh, people have to be very careful. I mean, the the threat of. Uh, uh, domestic terrorism is is very real, and the threat of domestic ter- terrorism through neo Nazis, white supremacists, and so on is very real. You're exactly right, Jamal, and um, it's quite a remarkable time in the history of this country that the greatest threat to this country is uh, 
domestic terrorism and coming from domestic terrorists. But let's not forget our history. Uh, we shouldn't forget, you know, the bombings of abortion clinics in the 70s and the killing of physicians and health professionals who were working at these clinics were murdered and assassinated by a similar kind of group of, you know, domestic terrorists. Let's not forget Timothy McVeigh, who bombed uh, the uh, the Murrah building in Oklahoma City uh, and killed, you know, how many hundreds of people and 15 children because of his white supremacy uh, tactics, beliefs, and, and uh, inclinations. Let's not forget Waco uh, in Texas, which is also a group of white supremacists who hunkered down and didn't believe that the government was legitimate. We have to face this ugly reality, Jamal, that even since the birth of this country, you know, there have been people who have been uh, engaged in white supremacy terrorism from the very beginning. I mean, abolitionists were were targeted and killed from the very beginning. African-Americans and indigenous Indians were attacked and killed and not thought of to be, you know, worthy of representation. Um, you know, the Civil War, We I think we can reframe it as a, an attempt of white supremacists in the South, the slave states, to say that, you know, the United States as we know it, or knew it at that time was not legitimate and that slavery was okay. So there's a long history here. I mean, the fact that we're waking up to it now, okay, is a good thing. But I think you're exactly right, man. This threat is real and it's not going away anytime soon. You're right, Jess, and we're, we're gonna keep an eye on this, uh, of course. Uh, I wanna switch uh, gears here and uh, go to Reports, which is uh, pretty much related, but that's in Palestine. And um, a recent report by, by Beth Salem, and we talked about it briefly, and, and next week hopefully we'll have someone who will address it uh, from the organization, which is a leading Israeli human rights organization, uh, which has been documenting the violations of human rights in occupied Palestine since 1989. So right. earlier uh, this month, it issued a position paper, that's how they term it, announcing that it has decided to draw a line. I mean, this is the first time they do that. The paper is titled, A Regime of Jewish Supremacy from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. This is apartheid. That's the paper uh, which makes yeah. the case for uh, what looks like apartheid which is, by the way, for people who don't know, uh, the Rome Statutes of International Criminal Court defines as inhumane acts committed under a regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over another racial group or groups. So this is the position paper, and again, this is the largest human rights organization in Israel to make such a statement. I mean, they've been documenting, they've uh, always been advocates to uh, uh, the plight of Palestinians on the ground. And so the way they explain it, just which is very important, so they lay it out, and I recommend to our viewers and listeners to go to their site and read the whole uh, paper. By the way, they, they, they break it down. They say apartheid in, in, by Israel uh, rests on four pillars. One is citizenship, 
two, land, three, freedom of movement, and four, political participation. So that's how they kind of break it down. And as you know, virtually any person of Jewish ancestry anywhere in the world can claim Israeli citizenship, immigration to Israel is allowed, or, but it's almost impossible for Palestinians in diaspora. And there is, of course, a minority of Palestinians, about 1.6 million to 1.8 million, uh, or, uh, uh, you know, out of 7 million, which is under current Israel, uh, they, they are Israeli citizens, but their rights are limited compared with the nearly 7 million Jewish counterparts. And I'm paraf- paraphrasing from their mm-hmm. writing in the paper and that Israel has pursued a policy of Judaizing the territory it controls, the paper says, based on the mindset that land is a resource meant almost exclusively to benefit the Jewish public. I'm just giving you some phrases right. in it. So, Jamal, so can, this I, is can, I, big can I just news. ask you a question? I want to ask you a question really quick. Mm-hmm. Nothing has changed in 72 years except it's gotten worse. What took Betselem so long to have this come to reality moment for themselves? I mean, really, why now? Well, first of all, as I said earlier, Betselem was established in 1989, so we cannot put the burden of uh, 70 plus years on them. They started as an organization and they've been working their way in documenting. So I don't right. want to be critical about like what took them this long because it was an accumulation of things, because I've been uh, I've been in contact with the representatives there when I was in Palestine. I've seen their work. Uh, they've been documenting things via video. They've been posting reports. Okay, but and why now, though? Is there something that they're seeing now that is categorically different that we're missing? Like, I'm, I'm kind of curious about the timing. I think it's two things. One, it's more than ever now, apartheid is very visible. Yeah. I mean, Israel... We can call it from day one apartheid, but they tried to gloss over it, and and uh, there was no, there wasn't the uh, 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 official annexation, for example, of the West Bank that happened officially and recognized by the United States, which means that you have almost uh, uh, nine hundred thousand or eight hundred to nine hundred thousand colonial settlers living there and enjoy Israeli laws, while the rest of the Palestinian population, more than 2.8 million, they have two sets of laws for two different two, 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 uh, ethnicities. Now it's more visible, and things have increased dramatically under, of course, Netanyahu. But I think also, to answer your question, there is an acceptance of this term and the timing because of what's happening on the ground and Israeli media has been using the term apartheid um, uh, at the time when the, of course, Netanyahu administration uh, has been fighting it and denying it. You know, as the, as the expression says, if it walks like a duck and right. quacks like a duck, they cannot deny it. So I feel it's probably for, uh, you know, uh, Betselem who at some points or certain points, they were hopeful there's going to be a change of government, but no, they're stuck with Netanyahu or change of attitude, and they've just seen the attitude getting worse. And they're seeing that 
people are accepting uh, the situation as uh, or the term as apartheid and some of them are happy with it it's not yeah. like there there are the, those who are critical of apartheid you know progressive uh, israelis but then there are those who said yeah so what this is a jewish state we are uh, we should be privileged and we should palestinians should be should not get and i'm i'm going to actually connect this later on maybe maybe we'll talk about it now i mean another but example. i have one but i have one theory that i want to throw out to you the 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 one theory that i have about why now why bet salem is doing this now is that it could be a message to the biden administration and to uh secretary uh, blinken who's our new secretary of state that this is an opportunity to maybe have some israeli cover for you know the possibility of having a more just sincere and dare i use this word jamal balanced approach to what's happening uh in in palestine and in terms of convening or doing something around israeli palestinian issues i mean Bet Salem is a very well-known international organization. Let's be clear. It's not just an Israeli organization, but it's a primarily Jewish-dominated organization. And do you think that this could be cover to the Biden administration? Uh, I can't disagree with, the, with you. I said the timing probably has several components. One saying that they're stuck with Netanyahu. Things are getting worse. They're not going to get better. The Israeli public are now accepting apartheid or the term apartheid. And then last but not least, they weren't maybe counting on uh, Trump uh, leaving. Right. And now there is a change in the United States and they know, you know, there is a different uh, sheriff in town uh, and they're sending a message that here we are, a, uh, an Israeli Jewish uh, organization, sending you a very strong message that what you have on the ground is apartheid. And so, so I agree with you on this. I mean, no question about it. But to add to the story of, again, the denial about apartheid and, and the examples, and this is um, um, another story uh, we wanted to discuss, uh, Jess, is uh, even, you know, the Israeli health minister, and this is connected to COVID, right, the COVID-19, so... Here we are, what we have on the ground, Israel controls uh, historic Palestine from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. And don't tell me that the West Bank is under the Palestinian Authority. That's just a facade, it, it, you know. It is a and, facade. And, and don't, don't tell me that Hamas controls Gaza. Well, guess what? They live in the largest open-air prison in Israel controls Gaza by air, by sea, by land. We know that. Everybody knows that. So now <clears throat> we have also 900,000 Israeli uh, Jewish settlers who are in the West Bank, who are, by the way, and most of them have received the coronavirus vaccine. They right. live in settlements that are a stone throw from Palestinian villages and towns. I mean, a few hundred feet in many cases or a few hundred uh, yards away. And so Israel has been sending, aside from its own clinics, they have outfitted you know, ambulances and buses and whatever and going to the neighborhoods and giving um, the vaccine. Actually, they are now on the second round of shots. They're pretty much right. done 
most of the round of shots. And they haven't given a single shot to Palestinians. So uh, Andrew Marr, um, a a journalist from BBC recently, uh, grilled the Israeli uh, health minister uh, Yuli Edelstein about why Israel is not extending its vaccination program uh, to the Palestinian people uh, in territories it occupies and controls. And this is the answer from Edelstein. Edelstein said that Israel has no more obligation to them than the Palestinian Minister of Health has to take care of dolphins in the Mediterranean. This is his answers. Well, yes, I, you I, heard this right. He's yeah, comparing, well, you know, he's making this crazy comparison that Israel has no obligation. Of course, nothing surprising. And again, this is the connection of why, that's right. what do you have on the ground, which you do have apartheid. But well, yeah, Israel... This, this goes beyond just a, uh, apartheid medical practice, Jamal. This goes into the area of medical malpractice, medical malfeasance, immorality, and a denial of ethical moral responsibility. Because we know that the Israelis, as an occupying power do have the legal, ethical, moral, and medical responsibility for making sure that the Palestinian population in a pandemic is taken care of. And I consider this among all of the moral atrocities that the Israelis have committed against Palestine and against Palestinians for 72 years. In my opinion, this is amongst the worst, most criminal, inhumane, uh, immoral, illegal things that the Israelis have, have have ever done. They absolutely have the obligation to vaccinate every Palestinian who is uh, under occupation. And breaking news, that's every Palestinian uh, in historic Palestine right now is in fact uh, under Israeli occupation. So uh, the the minister's response is disgusting. And let, let me just ask our listeners and ask you, uh, give you an example. What if the United States said, we, we are only going to vaccinate white, rich people in the United States because that's our obligation? Um, this gets back to the white supremacy comparison between what's happening in the United States and in the bulk of what's happening among Israelis. It's kind of this age of denial, white supremacy, you know, we're going to take care of a certain segment of the population, but not another. I mean, the other thing that's really ignorant, of course, about not vaccinating the Palestinians, Palestinians are less, as you said, Jamal, a couple of hundred feet from is illegal Israeli settlements. So if you think you're going to be protected by only vaccinating part of your population, you're completely false, wrong, and uh, ignorant about how this will continue to haunt you. I guess the next thing that really bothers me, Jamal, is that the mainstream media here in the United States have been holding out the Israeli vaccination plan as a model for the for the entire world. And what kind and of model is it, it? And they're getting it free, by the way. Right. They're, they're getting right. it free because it's a small exactly. country and they can vaccinate their population very fast. And so but what does it tell you? Back. What, what does it tell you that the Israeli, quote, Israeli model is being held out as a model for the entire world? Is Because this is medical apartheid, Jamal. Are we now saying that medical apartheid is the model, the standard of care that we should be practicing? Give me a break. 
Well, exactly, and kudos to Andrew Moore uh, of the BBC to bring this up. I mean, uh, we've been hearing about it uh, from Palestinians on the ground. I mean, right. I've been talking to friends and, and colleagues, and they were saying that, that this is what's going on. They don't have the vaccine. Sometimes they hear that China might be sending them some vaccine. Other times it's Russia, but Israel has basically lifted its hands and said, oh, we, we're occupying your land, but we are not responsible for you. That's, that's basically it. And this is the thing, just aside from that this is inhumane, totally inhumane and criminal, in my opinion, also not just only inhumane, it is Israel's obligation under the Fourth Geneva Convention, Article 56. And that's I'm going right. to quote from the article, and, and it's a long article that talks about this, and uh, fast forward to where the segment, it says that the occupying power, which is Israel, has the duty of ensuring, and it lists a whole bunch of things, and it gets into the medical, aside from food and security, and it goes all the way down to preventive measures necessary to combat the spread of contagious diseases and epidemics. It's Hello. spelled out. I mean, imagine right. this. How long ago this has been written? It's not just the just general health and water and food, and it spells it out that they are responsible to combat the spread of contagious diseases and epidemics. And guess what? Most Palestinians got the virus, and this is this is not a guesswork from Israelis. Israeli soldiers that stop them because more Israelis are in contact with the outside world than Palestinians. Right. They they uh, they travel. You know. You know the connection between Israel and New York and Brooklyn, where they they had the rabbis that spread all that um, you know coronavirus across and the, South Africa the, too, Jamal. The tri the tri-state area. Well, guess what? That's a connection between New York and Tel Aviv. They travel more to Europe, so if it came from European countries like Britain and Italy and wherever, they are more mobile. And the people in Gaza are pretty much are prisoners. They are locked in. So, so they are actually responsible for the spread, the initial spread of the coronavirus into the Palestinian territories. And they have a legal responsibility under international law and under the Geneva Convention to protect the, uh, the population it occupies. Well, that's why I consider it medical apartheid and medical malpractice, medical malfeasance. And as I said, Jamal, we have the same, same problem here in the United States. The idea that we can just vaccinate a select group of people and forget about oppressed people, occupied people, or disenfranchised people and not worry about vaccinating them is a is a level of ignorance and uh, malfeasance that is hard to really process because that virus will continue to circulate in the environment. So if the Israelis want to do this and think that somehow magically they're going to be protected, I have news for all the Israelis, and including the health minister, you're not protecting your population if you don't vaccinate everybody. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. 89.5 FM. So, Jamal, this uh, this kind of delusional idea, you know, that somehow if we just vaccinate 
a certain segment of the population, everything will be fine. You know, as I said, I think that, you know, only time will tell. This was also going to affect the United States. It's also going to affect other countries who are under this delusional idea that it's it's going to we can just protect ourselves because the United States is, you know, the, the president of Mexico just got uh, infected with the coronavirus. He was a denier. Mexico, in terms of the virus expanding and people being infected and their health system being, you know, uh, on the verge of collapse, you know, they're on our, they're our neighbors. So is Central and South America. So the idea that somehow, you know, if the whole world doesn't get vaccinated, Jamal, this virus is going to be a constant problem for the entire world, no matter if a, you know, small segment of the population it gets their vaccines. So and we'll, we'll come back to this. Just talk yeah. about the virus. I want to talk about our next uh, story. Yeah, what do you have? And uh, again, this is another crazy story, just as uh, the earlier, the first story we talked about, um, I mean, in a different way. But um, here you have a New York City mayoral candidate, uh, Andrew Yang, uh, just uh, and people remember Andrew Yang, he ran for president and he dropped right. out after I think the New Hampshire. He didn't uh, do well and right. uh, tried his uh, luck being a, an analyst on CNN. That didn't uh, work out well for him, so he decided. So why don't he? I'll just run. I'll just run for uh, mayor of New York then. Yeah, I didn't make it. Uh, I didn't make it. Uh, you know, on the presidential ticket. Um, you know, and so I'll try my luck to be an ana analyst on CNN. And now, hey, I want to be mayor of. Uh, the largest city in the United States, uh, New York City. So, which is fine, that's his right, anyone can run. And so, uh, you know, that's, uh, you'll think like he'll be talking about the recovery of New York after the vaccine, going after Bill de Blasio, who is the current mayor of New York saying he did, you know, I mean, this is kind of normal politicking and attacking right. his, predecessor or or his rivals and saying, you know, he didn't do a good job on the coronavirus. I'm going to do a better job. I'm going to bring back the economy to, to New York. None of that. So early on, his first column that he put out there, basically reaching out, and in, in it, he, he's targeting basically the uh, Jewish American community in New York. Uh, Andrew Yang uh, uh, last Friday just wrote a column in which he likened pro-Palestinian BDS movement to Nazi boycotts of Jewish businesses. And this is in his column entitled My Vision for New York City's Jewish Community. Yang said he would uh, be a reliable partner by cracking down on hate crimes and inst instances of anti-Semitism Hate crimes, which we know there's plenty in anti-Semitism, had nothing to do with Palestinians, had nothing to do with Arab Americans, has nothing to do with Muslim Americans who suffer themselves from racism and Islamophobia instead of, you know. And nothing to do with BDS. And had nothing to do with BDS. And he writes like, says, not only is BDS rooted in anti-Semitic uh, thought and, and history, 
hearkening uh, back to fascist pockets of Jewish businesses. And he, Yang, wrote this uh, article, uh, this column for the forward, and then he goes on about uh, that they must have strong ties with Israel's, that uh, strong ties with Israel's is so essential for, uh, for a global city uh, such as ours, which is New York City, uh, you know, and he talks about that, that's it's also bucketing Israel affects the economy of New York City as if New York City gets all its product and supplies from, from Israel. <laughs> he talks about small businesses and he stopped that we shouldn't stop uh, commerce. For our listeners, of course, BDS, for those who don't know, is the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions movement, which is a non-profit founded in 2005 by pro-Palestinian groups seeking to pressure Israel over its presence in the West Bank, which doesn't even go far, like as far as apartheid and so forth. And the uh, BDS, the organization BDS calls for opposition to Israel through non-violent means, such as boycotts to protest Israel's abuses against Palestinians in the region. I mean, what, what is, and I mean, I've never heard anything from, from him about Palestine, Israel, about international affairs, global affairs. He moved on from, you know, wanna be, be a president of the United States, and now he wants to be the mayor of New York City. And the first thing he wants to do is just uh, throw the Palestinians under the bus to advance his, uh, his case. Yeah, well, Jamal, so um, Andrew Yang had a reputation. This is one of the things that gained him a lot of support and popularity of being a person with his own opinions who wasn't swayed by political, you know, opportunism, who leaned toward, generally speaking, more the libertarian side of things and gained a lot of support for a you know, non-traditional candidate. There's no doubt about that. And as far as I'm concerned, the comment that he made about BDS not only reflects deep ignorance and political pandering to an interest group in New York City, I feel like this completely disqualifies him as a legitimate candidate for, for mayor of New York. Um, so since when is the mayor of New York involved in international relations? Isn't that something that is really well, driven be, by to the... To be the number item, uh, you know, uh, yeah. on his agenda. But this is I the mean, executive branch. Uh, started to, to talk about his uh, agenda to use this. By the way, I mean, the question is just at the time, this is the time when neo-Nazis, white supremacists, have actually murdered Jews in synagogues, right? We have this, and that's right. And then we have the leading insurrectionist at the Capitol. It's uh, again identified by the FBI as the biggest threat in the United States. It's really baffling that Andrew Yang would compare BDS to violent fascists. I mean, well, if, this is yeah. Of this course, is what it, he's doing. Of course, it is Jamal. But we we know that he is he has laid bare his soul by this article in the forward because it's clear that he is a political opportunist. He is, and you know, Andrew Yang's a smart guy. So for him to make these bold face lies, bald face lies 
about BDS and about the history of, uh, you know, what happened in Europe um, and connecting it somehow to BDS reflects a kind of uh, political opportunism uh, that, you know, I guess shouldn't surprise us in some way. But since he had branded himself as somewhat of a person who, who was who was kind of immune to those things, who was his own thinker, who was, you know, based on science and based on, you know, uh, careful analysis of the facts. As I said, I think this completely disqualifies him. Now, the other progressives who are running haven't said anything about BDS. So it'll be kind of interesting because uh, I know that Maya Wiley, uh, uh, who who is a big progressive candidate uh, uh, running for mayor also. Uh, she's on, She's one of the deans at the new school and she's worked in the mayor's office in uh, New York City. I'm not sure what she has said about this Yang uh, misstep, if you can call it that, but it's unclear whether or not the other progressive candidates in New York City are going to come out making these kinds of statements. It'll be interesting. Have you heard well, anything he's else? The one, he's the one who actually started this whole conversation. So okay. if it was not part of the agenda, I think he's desperate. I think I mean, it's totally disappointing because like uh, I assumed, as you, you said, he's an intelligent uh, person, he's progressive, that by saying something like this, he's going to get the Jewish vote and donors and money uh, to contribute to, to his campaign. I mean, he just like went all out there you know, having a very uh, cheap shot, really, at Palestinians, at the Arab American community, at the uh, Muslim community, when we have bigger issues in this country, and New York has much bigger issues than the BDS, it's not the, it's not part of the the discussion. Uh, as you know... Uh, so, Jamal, maybe, maybe you should send him some of the video of pro-Israel supporters being part of the seditious and treasonous gang that tried to um, have a coup d'etat at the U.S. Capitol on well, January well, 6th. I mean, not not just this, just This is at the same time when we started talking uh, earlier on about the largest Israeli organization, human rights organization, saying that Israel now, it is apartheid in big capital letters in its yeah. position paper. And if he, I know that Andrew Yang reads. Have you heard him well, condemning apartheid? Never. No, so that, that, and, that's going to be something hopefully... So he, he really shifts the conversation about BDS. Right. Yeah, but here's the thing, Jamal, that Andrew Yang doesn't realize, that there is a deep progressive kind of uh, uh, core in New York City. Uh, And that, you know, maybe he's pitching himself to a select few groups in Manhattan. But if you look at the entirety of all the boroughs and the entirety of New York City, Jamal, it's deeply, deeply, deeply progressive and I think Andrew Yang is going to run into a bit of a buzzsaw for this, you know, political opportunism. I don't believe it's going to get him very far. Well, I feel if he's a, if he, uh, like I said, he's an intelligent uh, guy. He went to Brown University and then got his uh, law degree from Columbia University. And uh, he should know that actually the definition of BDS, the whole idea of the boycott 
the nonviolent boycott movement was created to combat apartheid in South Africa. And now the same thing is happening in Palestine. And again, it's a nonviolent movement. And so if he doesn't, if, he, if he's not a student of history, he probably should read more and stop just basically selling himself out to the highest bidder. Well, I just have, I'll, I'll leave it with one more sentence, one more statement, Jamal. Bye-bye, Andrew Yang. You just blew it. And, you know, sorry about that, but, you know, there's going to be many more candidates who are high, more highly qualified and more and more committed to justice and equality and equity than you are. So you just, you just blew it for yourself. There are, believe it or not, members of Congress who support BDS, and one of them is Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who basically openly supports the BDS move, movement. And she said, BDS opposes Israel's denial of Palestinian rights and dignity. That's in a tweet she put out there. People are entitled to express their views in this country and should support this non-violent movement. Well, that, that's, just, that's just common sense and a, a very rigorous statement based on her reading and understanding of what's happening over there. I mean, once people open up their eyes to apartheid that's going on, uh, it's being committed against, you know, basically half of the population or more that live in historic Palestine, you would never make a comment that Andrew Yang made. You would, in fact, especially if you're committed to nonviolent approaches, as we all are, you would want to support BDS to the fullest extent possible because it applies the kind of economic and political pressure that we all want to get um, rogue states and despots and oppressive states to change their ways. So, I mean, it seems like common sense would tell you, Jamal, that every politician should be on board with BDS at this time. All right, so we have a few more minutes, uh, uh, Jess, and I want to talk a little bit uh, more about the situation here in the United States. We are in week two of the Biden administration. Do you like what you see or, you, you know, what do you think about what's happening? Well, the Biden administration, I have to give it credit for a lot of things, even though I still have a lot of issues with what they're doing. But I would say on balance, given the executive orders that have been written so far, and I think there's been about 40 to 45 uh, executive orders that have been written, have been very impressive, having to do with you know, climate change, having to do with immigration reform, having to do with you know, the COVID-19 relief bill, having to do with a commitment to social equity and equality. I mean, you have to give the Biden administration and specifically President uh, Biden a lot of credit for pushing these executive orders through. I guess my, my concern is that in terms of the politics that are going on between the Congress and the Senate and the White House, between the legislative branch and the executive branch, I'm worried that the Biden administration, especially, you know, given the, you know, given what's happening right now, is attempting to try to do this thing, which is not going to happen. He wants to have a 
bipartisan bill. He wants to work collaboratively, even though the Republicans for the past four years and you know, prior to Obama, shut out Democrats on every conceivable opportunity for cooperation. And my worry, Jamal, is that unless Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and President Biden play hardball, they're only going to have a majority for about two years, if they're lucky. Um, they need to press through with this progressive agenda and get as much things passed as possible. The idea somehow that the Republicans, who have now doubled down on being the party of Trump, are going to work collaboratively with uh, Democrats to pass these bills is delusional. It's not reality. So my feeling, you need to pass these bills. The country's suffering. People, unemployment is, you know, really at a terrible rate right now, keeps increasing. Um, people are suffering economically. The the vaccination plan, despite what, you know, the Biden administration is trying to do, not everybody's going to get vaccinated probably until the fall, as it turns out. So with all these considerations, I think playing and waiting for Republicans to kind of come to their senses and work for the good of the entire country, it's not going to happen. You need to pass this legislation, work it through, because you're probably only going to have two years of a majority of the, the Senate, the House, and the uh, and the White House. I think Biden, uh, he, he still uh, sometimes puts his uh, senator's hat on because he keeps talking about working both sides of the aisle and being I don't inclusive see and and give the uh, Republicans a seat uh, at the table. And uh, maybe you're right, that might not be helpful that you need just to kind of bulldoze your way through uh, very quickly. The one thing that I really like that uh, what we've been seeing uh, on the news, uh, these briefings now, that there is no BS, straightforward, uh, updates on a daily basis, whether from the president or from the CDC, uh, Dr. Right. Fauci and others, they're actually giving people facts before, like you didn't know <laughs> your head from your toe every time they keep right. changing the stories and lying to the American public. And I'd rather, and Biden keeps saying, and he's, you should love him for that because he keeps saying it's going to get worse before it's going to get better. He's not giving people just like, um, you know, um, BS that Trump was always saying, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it's going to go away by itself. We're going to, you know, by the summer it's gone. He's, he's not saying drink. He's not saying drink bleach to uh, he's make not the saying virus drink go away. Bleach, none of that. So they are actually, uh, you know, setting um, realistic expectations. Yeah. Uh, and that part is that part is really good. Jamal, don't get me wrong. I mean, being being based in reality and and giving science, the place that it needs to have during a pandemic is is fantastic news. I am delighted to see reality and science come back to the forefront. That's not to say that there aren't some problems with the Biden plan and, and the Biden perspective, but we have to give, I think we should give his administration a chance. It's only been eight or nine days, the second week, as you said. Let's give him a chance. I will say, though, the Biden immigration executive order is really great, but there was a federal judge in Texas this week who who basically, you know, uh, uh, put a stop to the Biden executive order about, uh, 
you know, the changes that he wanted to make on family separation and immigration. So, you know, the the Trump judicial branch, uh, all the judges, you know, in the country, especially in Texas and other parts, are not going to just let Biden uh, implement this plan without a big fight. So this is back to where we started the show today. You know, if anybody believes that Trump is gone or Trumpism is gone or that the Republicans aren't going to double down and try to destroy and undo everything the Biden administration is trying to do, you are completely wrong. They will do they will stop at nothing to stop the Biden administration from going forward on this. It's going to be it's going to be a fight. And, you know, this impeachment uh, trial in the Senate that's coming up, you looks like you have 45 senators who believe that insurrection is okay and that it's not an impeachable uh, uh, offense, which, you know, when you really think about that, Jamal, uh, it makes me think of Marjorie Taylor Greene. It makes me think of QAnon. It makes me think of all these these crazy conspiracy theories that senators of this country are doubling down on. Yeah, I mean, especially now uh, we have seen all the new evidence, the new videos that the organization behind it, all the websites and sites of these far-right groups were kind of... uh, giving instructions and planning this for months. And that's right. That's what this wasn't such just like an insane, uh, something that right. happened overnight. And of course, uh, the, those people who got arrested and the first question they asked him, well, why did you do it? They said, I listened to Donald Trump. Trump told me. <laughs> every, hey. every single one of them is saying, I'm right. following the president's no, orders. Jamal, they were asking for pardons from President Trump. Oh, and I forgot one more thing about your favorite congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. There are uh, Facebook posts where these crazy extremists said that Democratic congressmen and women should be assassinated. And she, she in her account, liked these comments when they were posted on Facebook. So you have a congresswoman who's advocating, supporting, and liking on Facebook the political assassination of, of, of congressmen and women who happen to be Democratic. And I, I just would say if Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar had done the same thing, Jamal, would they be given a pass? I mean, this is like an incitement to commit murder. And she's probably, even though there are some congresspeople who are going to, who, who in fact are asking that she be removed from the Congress, it looks like the Republicans, as of today, are going to continue to protect her. You should be removed. Couple of minutes, Jess. Uh, people are getting vaccinated. Still going slow. Uh, Dr. Fauci said yesterday, "Yeah, the goal is still 100 million people, but that's uh, not our ceiling, which means yeah. we're going to increase that. Probably, it's going to be." Maybe 130 million people in in 100 days. So, I don't see it, man. Sorry. And there's what, just, what, there's what just not noticing, enough vaccine. There's uh, just not enough vaccine. What I'm so. noticing, um, and this is our neighborhood, San Francisco, Jess, is horrible. It's terrible. It's like for a, such a small kind of city in comparison to New York and other cities. 
and with all the technology and the advancement, it's behind the times that people from the San Francisco Bay Area are going two hours up north and different places. And recently, a friend of mine contacted me and said, oh, if you want to get vaccinated, go to the website uh, of Santa Clara because you can go get vaccinated faster there. And I said, no, I'm not going to cut through the line. I'll wait my turn. But uh, this is the desperation it, it has created. Uh, and you have been working in the city forever at uh, the largest medical center and world, the world-renowned UCSF. What's the problem? Well, I think you put your finger on the problem, Jamal. We, we have one of the wealthiest cities, not just in the United States, but the world. We have some of the best medical centers and research institutions in the world. And yet San Francisco only opened its first mass vaccination site in the city yesterday. And if you look at the percentage of people in San Francisco who are getting vaccinated, it's at such a low rate that you have to scratch your head and wonder why. In my opinion, it seems like the rate is much lower, even given the consideration of the, you know, not having enough doses to go around. There's something else that's uh, really in the system that is delaying it. And I think, you know, there's a lack of city and medical center cooperation. There's a lack of public health cooperation with the big players. Um, I, the, the, the state, in fact, just announced a partnership with Blue Cross Anth Anthem Blue Cross to see if they could facilitate getting vaccines out. But I hate to say this of, of, of uh, you know, San Francisco, but I'm just going to call it as I see it. It's really been a failure to get enough people vaccinated. And, um, better than, better you know, it has to go to the mayor's office. It has to go to the director of public health. You know, they've really failed the city and county of San Francisco. Yeah, the last report that I've read, they uh, just almost finished uh, vaccinating health uh, officials, uh, I guess, Come on. tier one, and they moved into 75 and older. When you have in other counties, they're already vac vaccinating people who are 65 and older, and some right. have moved even right. to... Right, we're behind. They're so and it's, behind. It's lack of leadership, Jamal, put it, put it bluntly. I do want to just say one other piece of bad news, I'm sorry. But unfortunately, um, uh, Governor Newsom, Governor Newsom has been caught up in a political uh, battle around a call for his uh, being recalled. And I'm afraid the call to reopen, you know, dining in various establishments in the middle of a, the darkest period of time of the pandemic, just because the ICU bed availability rate is below 15 percent, is I have to say that, and I'm extremely sensitive to the economic devastation that's been brought to the to the city, yes, especially. Yes, it, it, it makes zero sense. They are it's drifting not good, Jamal. in the wind. It's not good. They it's, ordered it's, the closure of these restaurants when the weather was nice, when the sun was out, and yeah. just before the holidays when people, businesses started just to kind of stand up on their feet and shut them down and now they're telling them anyway just i'm talking about not the pandemic i'm talking about a decision to help to help them economically now they're telling them they can open 
in the midst yeah. of the rainy season where they cannot use their outside seating yeah, but because it's pouring. Exactly. Exactly. So it tells Jamal, you that but the they pandemic, are just like drifting. They're just like throwing darts. Uh, you know. Right. It's a. It was a. But listen, that's a political decision that was not based on science, because it's not in the best interest of our communities to open things up right now. So I'll, I'll just leave it at that. I know we'll come back to this in our next show for sure. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com to download all our latest episodes and we will talk to you next week. See you next week. <laughs>